Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Mark Arsenault, the author of The Imposter's War Press, Propaganda, and the Newsman Who Battled for the Minds of America. This is his first nonfiction book. He's a reporter for the Boston Globe, and in particular, their famous Spotlight Unit. Thanks so much for being here, Mr. Arsenal. Thanks very much for having me. Before we start our interview, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. The story of American involvement in World War I is famous for how long it took President Wilson to make that commitment. Isolationist forces in the U.S. were substantial, and it took three years after the war started for Wilson to declare that the world must be made safe for democracy. But as Mark argues, one reason for that delay is that Germany allegedly, emphasis on allegedly, foreshadowed Russia's 2016 election effort with their own propaganda network. They were reported at the time to have infiltrated American media, industry, and the government to keep Americans suspicious of sending troops to Europe. If not for a man who went by the name of John Revelstroke Ratham, editor of the Providence Journal, that so-called German effort may never have become well-known. So first of all, Mark, you're a reporter, I'm a reporter, from one reporter to another. Why do you think we reporters are so fascinated by the work of other reporters? Well, because I think we know how hard it is, number one, right? Um, and I think also we know uh, how valuable uh, good reporting can be uh, and how dangerous reporting can be when it's uh, used incorrectly, so I think for those reasons. You wrote for the particular newspaper that is spotlighted, if I may say, in this book, the Providence Journal. When and how did you discover this story of Mr. Ratham, and what were your sources for this book? Uh, yeah, I worked in the Providence Journal from 1998 to 2008, and in 2004, the paper was celebrating its 175th birthday. So I was assigned with another reporter to essentially write a special section about the history of the newspaper, because uh, they really did it up big, um, this monumental birthday. So one of the first things we did was look back at what did they do 25 years earlier at the 150th anniversary of the paper, which would have been in the late 70s. And those guys had fallen hard into the Wraith and Vortex. Uh, and they had done pretty good work around him and had figured out that John Ratham was probably not his real name. Uh, that, of course, was immediately fascinating. Uh, I spent as much time on Ratham on that project as I could. I also had to write about the other, you know, the other uh, more, more than a century's worth of history of the paper, so we couldn't spend our time on Ratham. But I left that project thinking, wow, somebody really needs to do a book someday about John Ratham. A lot of time passed, and um, in 2018, I was part of a, a live show that the Boston Globe puts on known as Globe Live, where reporters write exclusive stories, um, original stories, just for the event. 
And then we sell a bunch of tickets in, a, in an auditorium and people come and we go and we tell those stories. Um, it's a really fun event. I've done it three times. And in 2018, the story I did was just one little slice of the John Ratham, one little scandal from John Ratham's amazing uh, life of scandals. And people really reacted well to it. And I thought, well, maybe this is the time to you know, get off my butt after some 15 years after I discovered Ratham and actually write that book. So that's sort of what kicked me off uh, trying to knock this project out. So let's get into some of the content uh, here. Uh, your story opens with the tale, I hope I say the name right, the tale of Captain Carl Boyed. Is that how you say it? Captain right. Carl Boyed, a high-ranking German official who was sent home by the president himself, President Wilson, because Boyed was allegedly engaged in sabotage and propaganda in violation of Americans uh, of the American policy of neutrality. So before we get into that story, there's a couple of things we have to just put together here to figure out where, you know, where the stage is kind of set. The first thing is, and you have your, your first chapter of the book uh, covers this, or I guess it's the second chapter. Um, how did World War I start? What do we need to know to get ourselves into the World War I tale and story? Sure. And I'd like to think that the book is really the, a 101 level course on how World War I started and America got involved. Anyone spend a lot of time on that? Um, uh, there are certainly, you know, tons of books that do a much deeper and better job explaining that, although perhaps not the funnier job. Uh, because if you look I thought back, this was a pretty clear uh, explanation, actually. I actually yeah. enjoyed your explanation. No, thank you. If you look back from 100 years, um, the, the way the war began is almost like a dark comedy, right? So uh, the five major powers in Europe, right? Germany and Austria-Hungary, known as the central powers in Central Europe, um, had an alliance. Around them, there were other alliances between um, France, England, and Russia, would be another alliance. We refer to them as the Allies. And you know, these countries had wars and proxy wars all the time. They try to balance each other out by forming these alliances and spending massive amounts on their armies. So in, um, uh, in the summer of 1914, the, um, the heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, was murdered in uh, Sarajevo. Um, after surviving an assassination attempt on the same day, he was murdered 45 minutes later by the same group that tried to just that just had just failed to kill him uh, earlier that day. Um, that touched off what I kind of think of as sort of like a, almost like a slow motion car wreck, where just these countries just uh, they obeyed their alliances, they honored their alliances, and they slid into this war one after another. No one thought it was going to be you know, the sort of uh, massive worldwide conflict that it began. No one thought it would be as destructive and, and horrible as it ended up being. Um, but a lot of it goes back to a few really rash and not too smart decisions made in the afternoon of um, in June 1914 in Sarajevo when Fran Ferdinand uh, survives his assassination attempt, but yet goes back out on the same roads that he had just come off of and is killed in his convoy. Um, uh, like 45 minutes later. Crazy. So, uh, yeah, so why was America so, determined to stay so, neutral? Yeah. So at the very beginning of this, um, America, uh, Woodrow Wilson said in August of 1914, the war began, America was going to be neutral. And that was the duty of 
every American citizen was uh, neutrality in the war. That did not mean you couldn't root for somebody or cheer for somebody if you, uh, if you wanted one side to win or another. You could certainly express that with First Amendment rights there. And Second Amendment rights here, uh, guns and free speech are protected in America. And so weapons makers were certainly allowed to sell weapons to whichever side wanted to buy them. Both sides wanted to buy them. Unfortunately for Germany, uh, the British Navy controlled the Atlantic. So Germany could buy all the weapons it wanted in America, but generally could not get them back home. Whereas, uh, you know, Great Britain and the Allies could buy superior, well-made American artillery shells and bring them home as quickly as they could carry them. So everything that the American, that the German diplomats in America did stemmed from this fact that all the propaganda, the sabotage, the economic sabotage, the physical sabotage that they were involved in, the espionage, all came to try to undermine America's export of munitions and other war supplies to the Allies because Germany, because of the British Navy, was unable to uh, import things from America at the same rate. What had been in the papers about Carl Boyette? Um, who was he and how did he wind up in the crosshairs of literally the highest American f- uh, officials? Yeah, well, uh, Boyad was a, was a German diplomat stationed in America. He was the naval attache, which is a pretty high diplomatic post. Uh, he was well thought of here. Again, we were at peace with Germany. We, we were on friendly terms with Germany and uh, Germany had an entire diplomatic uh, contingent stationed mostly in Washington and New York. It, you know, consulates uh, and embassies, and um, they were part of the normal uh, diplomatic relations between these two friendly countries at the start of the war. As time went on, and Germany saw that there was, they were unable to stem the flow of American weapons and other war supplies to Great Britain, uh, they started to get orders from Berlin to be more and more aggressive in trying to counter America's um, uh, role in, in in supplying these mostly weapons. So uh, they use propaganda of all kinds, um, including like sort of straight advertising to more sinister versions. Um, they um, tried to stir up labor trouble in American factories. Uh, they were they went working through ethnic ethnic groups uh, and clubs. They insisted that anyone of German or Austrian nationality quit or strike uh, at their job in any of these um, industrial plants that were, that were making war supplies to go to Europe. And they were accused and were responsible for a good amount of actual sabotage, uh, which included, I did an entire chapter early in the book on the attempts to blow up a railroad bridge between the US and Canada. On the US side was in Vanceboro, Maine, and they sent one lone bomber on a train from New York through Boston up to Maine to try to blow up this railroad bridge in early 1915. He did detonate a bomb on the bridge. Uh, the, the bridge, again, he wasn't a munition expert, so the bridge survived the bombing. The bomber was caught, uh, and that became uh, a, sort of a diplomatic nightmare for uh, Germany early in the war. I think to understand how this John Ratham was able to manipulate not only the media of that era, but to manipulate public opinion against Germany, we have to understand how the media of that era works. And one of the things that drives me crazy is when people bash the media today um, because they're, you know, not to pick out any particular networks, but they're partisan or they have an axe to grind with a certain party. Um, 
back then in the 1910s and certainly even more so in the 1800s, um, media was terrible. I mean, they were all controlled by partisan outlets and there was very little quality control. Uh, it was much more important to sell newspapers for any particular reason that you could, you know, a, a, any way you can sell them is how you tried to sell them. So uh, describe if you can, maybe expand on that a little bit. Um, what was the media like and how did newspapers work back then? Was everything kind of flowing downhill the way it does from the New York Times and the Boston Globe, let's say, or was it a little different back then? Yeah, well, it was a little different back then. And the reason Ratham was influential is because he was able to get his stories into other newspapers. Now, he was the editor of the Providence Journal. He got the job, the, the top job in 1912 and held it through the war. Uh, the Providence Journal had a really small direct readership, maybe 20 or 22,000. That's not many people. Right? And these they are people just subscribe to it. It comes to their mailbox yeah. or doorstep every day. Correct. Subscribers or people who pick it up the newsstand, right? Or, uh, you know, who might, you might be on a, you might put some on a train, you might be able to get it in Boston, but you're not going to get it much further than beyond Providence or beyond Rhode Island. However, Ratham's stories were picked up by, by the newswires and seeded all over the country. Uh, many of his stories were reprinted word for word in a syndication deal with the New York Times. So the, the New York Times would take a Ratham story in the afternoon before the papers would go to bed, right? They would be printed in the morning, goes to bed in the evening the night before. Uh, they would typeset his story that they got over the wires and run it the next day, the same day that it's in the journal, with only adding one line to the story at the very top, which just said, the Providence Journal will say today. Then it would run the entire Ratham story in its entirety, word for word, verbatim. And that was essentially what it was like to go viral in 1915. It's your words that you type, properly credited to you, rolling off printing presses in other cities across the country. And Raven's stories were sensational enough that they began to get picked up all over the nation. They, were, they got a big amplification by the New York Times in this word-for-word -word syndication deal. And they'd be picked up by the wires in states in every state. And... Um, uh, and territory in, in America. So who was John Ratham? Who was this guy? Um, the, he told many tall tales about what he had been through, um, maybe even more than tall tales, just outright lies. He had a hundred different stories about all the different things he had seen as a reporter. Um, you're not even sure this is his real name. So how did he come to America? Um, and you had a pretty colorful explanation of what it would be like to sit in a pub with him. Um, who, who is this guy? Well, John Ratham was not his real name. John Ratham is a character uh, invented by a really talented actor uh, who was a wonderful writer and a terrific storyteller, uh, but also someone uh, with uh, very elastic morals, right? Uh, who was uh, early in his life, a con man, a thief, an extortionist. Uh, he arrived in, from, he's an Australian native. That's one thing about himself that was true. He left Australia when he was 20. He landed in, um, spent some time in Hong Kong, then landed in British Columbia. And when he, when he walked off the boat in British Columbia, his former life disappeared. And he created the character of John Revelstoke Raper. Uh, immediately sought work as a journalist, became, you know, he wrote 
he wrote some wonderful stories. He was an extremely talented journalist. What did the reporter's life offer him? Um, I think a chance, well, he was good at it and he loved it. I think if, if you love journalism, then, I mean, that is, I mean, I mean, you and I are in the same boat. It's kind of hard to imagine doing anything else. Uh, it was a decent living. Uh, he wasn't a farmhand. You know, he was, he was telling people stories and he was writing and using that gift. And he had a wonderful gift for writing. He was a tremendous writer, which is why no matter how much trouble he got in, he seemed to always get another chance. He had a, he had a scam he used to pull when he was working in British Columbia. You'd write a story, a very negative story about somebody prominent in town, usually somebody with money. You'd bring that unpublished story to them and say, oh my God, look at this terrible story I've written about you. You would hate to see this published in the newspaper, wouldn't you? For a fee, I could sand off some of those rough edges, or for a larger sum, I could just throw the whole thing away. So you tell me what you would like me to do. But I tell you, that's um, not a bad idea. Do the story first and just go, do you want this out there or not? Pay me. You won't you'll never right. see it. I'll bury it forever. Right. So when he got a lot of trouble doing that, um, you know, yeah, he I got fired and, and he left, he, he, he exited, um, he left Vancouver just ahead of the police who were coming to arrest him for extortion after pulling this scam one too many times. And that's how he ended up in America for the first time after three years working uh, in uh, Western Canada. And he um, was colorful, right? He was, he was uh, kind of a very, um, he had a lot of texture as a as a character, right? Yeah, just imagine now again in 1915 when he threw himself to the propaganda wars against Germany. He would have been 47 years old, a big guy, 6'2", 260, built like one. His head was a big giant square head on a big <laughs> oval body. He smelled like cigar all the time. He had cigar ash on his lapel constantly. Uh, brash, bossy. Um, prone to floor stamping, screaming fits in the newsroom if something didn't go his way. Uh, but most of I don't that even, was I sure. can't even picture anyone ever doing anything like that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead, sorry. That, that was mostly for show. When he really got mad for right. real, then his face used to like uh, get blotchy. So I described it as like the pattern on a giraffe. Uh, and then he would stomp his feet and say, this is the way I want it, damn it. And this is the way it's going to be. Uh, so a very colorful newsman, but also known for writing, you know, sensitive poetry about love and nature, which was published in national magazines, known for being extremely good to people who were loyal to him, and known as uh, just a terrifically talented writer who didn't write in sort of the stilted style of the day, who wrote more like a modern writer, who wrote... Um, more uh, colorfully, more descriptive, um, more active than uh, I think a, a lot of his peers. Uh, you can read his writing now and it, it still feels, uh, mm. his best work still feels extremely fresh. But again, he was a character playing a role. The book is called The Imposter's War because it follows the life of this unbelievably talented imposter who invented the character of John R. Raven. And just briefly explain how he got to the Providence Journal. After leaving Canada, he started working for a bit in the Pacific Northwest. Um, got fired again from being the editor of a little paper in Astoria, Oregon, for I think essentially doing the same kind of uh, extortion scams that he had used in Canada. Worked his way down to the San Francisco Chronicle, which was a big time newspaper 
at the time, is still a pretty well-respected paper now, uh, became a favorite of the editors there, did some wonderful work um, covering, mostly doing long-term feature writing uh, until uh, his mistress tried to frame his wife for attempted murder. After that incident, maybe we'll come back to that. After that incident, he had to leave uh, he had to leave San Francisco in the wake of that scandal, went to Chicago briefly, where he he wrote um, um, it's just a numbingly beautiful uh, and tragic story about the, the, the tragedy of the Iroquois Theater, which burned down in 1903 and killed 600 people. And on deadline, wrote um, just a, a breathtaking story, uh, narrative reconstruction of that fire done, done under unthinkable pressure um, that still amazes me to this day. And I've done that kind of work. I mean, I, I wrote the Globe, the main bar story, uh, the day of the Boston Marathon bomb. And so I know what it's like to take feeds from reporters all over the city, at the hospitals, at the, at the site, and try to weave those feeds on deadline, under time pressure, into some kind of coherent story that not only tells you the facts of the day, but conveys the emotional power of being in the city at that time. And that's what Raytheon did with that fire. And um, it's, it's breathtaking work. He left to go work briefly um, in a PR firm, working secretly for the most powerful corporations in America, which were the railroads. Um, work writing black propaganda for the railroads to try to kill legislation that would make things more expensive for the railroads to do business. When he got, when he got laid off from that job, he was kicking around New York looking for work when he heard that a newspaper in Providence, Rhode Island had lost a bunch of staff to a crosstown rival and was looking for experienced hands. So he took the train to Providence and uh, had an interview and left with, uh, with an offer to become the managing editor of 1906. Worked that job until 1912, was promoted to the top editor. And uh, at that point, no one looking over his shoulder, no guardrails. Um, he was allowed to do what he wanted. It's amazing to hear how much, uh, how similar the business was back then, even to what goes on today. A bunch of staff left, they're looking for people, and people move from all over the country to work there. Yeah. Um, what made him a good fit for the Brits to use as either an unwitting or witting? propagandist? Well, he was definitely a witting propagandist. <laughs> he, he worked together with um, British intelligence uh, to get stories negative to Germany out into the press. And he also worked with a domestic spy agency that was also wired in with the British. Uh, it was run by a Czech native um, who wanted to see Austria-Hungary lose the war so his the region he grew up could be free. Did he enjoy selling papers or did he enjoy making an impact for the Brits? I think both of those things. Again, he was born in Australia. That part of his resume is true. Uh, so he would have been born a British subject because Australia being a British dominion at the time. Uh, he was born in 1868 in Melbourne. He was born a British subject. At the time, in, in 1915, British and German troops were slaughtering each other in trench warfare in France. So. Um, I think he certainly grew up with British sensibilities. He very much liked to sell newspapers. His motto was to was raise hell and sell papers, which I think is sort of the motto of a lot of these mavericky uh, newspaper barons over the years. Um, and, uh, and he enjoyed making an impact. He also enjoyed 
applause. And that got him in a lot of trouble later when he started taking personal credit for some of the spy work done by the British and done by this other domestic uh, spy agency, as well as by the FBI. He became very close with Bruce Velasquez, who was the head of the FBI at the time. And a lot of rumor and uh, tips flow back and forth between Ratham and Velasquez. There are definitely things Velasquez was able to confirm for Ratham that ended up in news stories. Uh, and anytime Ratham got a tip about somebody who might have German sympathies, he passed that along to the FBI and the FBI followed up on many of those tips. So based on rumor, half-baked rumor or quarter-baked speculation from some newspaper editor in Providence, the FBI was actually putting American citizens under surveillance all over the country. Mm. Um, were, um, so the Brits' goal here is to turn the American people against the Germans. So what stories did they plant? You don't have to you know, describe each one in detail, but just give us a flavor here of what kinds of things he was willing to put in his newspaper to help the Brits turn the American people against Germany and away from neutrality. Sure. Now, granted, remember, at the beginning of the war, most Americans didn't know who to root for. It was just another European war that happened all the time. No one knew that this one was going to be special in the way that it was. Uh, there was also, in a country of about 90, 92 million people, about 8 million people of German background, either from Germany themselves or the son of German immigrants, and about 4 or 5 million Irish Americans who, you know, after what, 800 years of strife with Great Britain, were not really fans of, of uh, Britain. So that's a pretty sizable base that was either pro-German or at the very least uh, not interested in risking their sons uh, for Great Britain and France. Right? So uh, America was, in a lot of ways, had so many opinions about who should win the war that sort of added up as sort of a confused neutrality. Right? So that was the, the playing field that uh, both the spies on both sides had to work with. Uh, the British helped Ratham get a lot of stories in the newspaper about uh, German efforts to buy American weapons plants. And if they could be controlled by German interests, those weapon plants would either shut down or be sure that they would not sell any weapons to any of the Allied nations. Um, I think in uh, Ratham's uh, I call it his Mona Lisa. He wrote a story in 1915 that uh, German diplomats in the U.S. were trying to goad America and Mexico into a shooting war. I couldn't believe and, that. I, I really couldn't believe that story, that that made it into the papers. That is wild. And it seemed crazy at the time and was widely dismissed. However, two years later, the Zimmerman telegram came out in uh, early in the spring of 1917 of one of the most famous, maybe most famous telegram in world history, which showed that Germany was trying to do exactly that. They were trying to uh, go Germany into, I mean, go Mexico into attacking attack in the southwest of the United States, uh, trying to form some type of military alliance with Mexico against the U.S. Um, and so Ratham is sort of proven right two years later, uh, but at the time it was considered completely fanciful. Um, but people started to believe this, believe some of these stories. And so much so that the you know, German diplomats in America tried to do everything they could do to shut Germany up. I think the measure of Ratham's effect on the American public 
uh, can be, you can see it in what the Germans in, in this country tried to do to shut him up, which was, um, you know, hit pieces in pro-German magazines, tried to dig into his background, tried to discredit him uh, in the press as best they could. And they um, complained directly to the Wilson administration about John Rapin. Nothing you can do to shut him up, they asked the Wilson administration. But people, uh, I mean, did people have a hard time believing that the Providence Journal are breaking stories of this magnitude? I mean, that would be like, I mean, I don't know, the Providence Journal today being, you know, having a reporter breaking stories about collusion between Donald Trump and Russia. Yeah, well, it, again, I would say that the, the Providence was a much more influential city at the time, right? Yeah. At the time, it was about the, about the 20th biggest city in America, which is sort of what Boston or Washington, D.C. is now. So it came from a much bigger base. It was a much it was a more influential paper in that sense, and um, because the stories were, but because the stories had been seeded all over the country, and people were believing them and buying them, uh, it didn't take that long for um, doubts about the stories to start to pass. Especially when some things started coming through, such as the Zimmerman charge. Uh, you described this incredible scene as this diplomat, Carl Boyed, gets thrown out of America. Describe that scene and Boyed's reaction as he tries to stand there, um, basically getting a, a villain's send-off at the pier. Uh, it was in New York, right? Uh, it was in Hoboken, New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So he's leaving. That's New York on. to me. So, yeah. so uh, <laughs> d describe this incredible send-off that he gets, and he basically begs the crowd to believe him. Yeah, so I, I was able to put together this scene. I'm glad you brought it up. I love this scene. Uh, it's the opening it's scene of the book. Yeah, I was able to put together because, again, there's probably 40 newspaper reporters there. So there are many descriptions of this scene that I was able to draw from. Boyed gets out of the car, right? Um, he's uh, the, the Rotterdam, which is a Dutch ocean liner, is at the pier, coal smoke wafting out of its funnels. Um, Coal smoke wafts through the neighborhood in Hoboken. Uh, a couple blocks away, there's a two-week-old baby laying in his crib, recovering from wounds suffered by a doctor's four step steps during a difficult delivery. And that baby is Frank Sinatra. So as Frank Sinatra is a baby laying in his crib, uh, Carl Boyed and his and his um, his valet get out of the car uh, and uh, get out of the cab and start unloading the bags. There's a Massive reporters waiting because they know Boyad has just been thrown out of the country for allegedly for espionage. Much of it in the newspapers, including the journal. Uh, there's a there's a, a almost a near riot as they try to get him down the pier, and a and a sort of a, a wedge of stevedores, almost like blocking on a special teams play in football or something, are trying to like push people out of the way. People are going flying. People are getting toppled over. Boyed's looking around uh, at the chaos, looking, as one reporter described, like he was trying to find something to climb. Uh, he gets to the end of the dock uh, near the gangway, and there's another group of reporters there. Cameras are blazing. Uh, people are demanding interviews. And he takes from his coat pocket uh, a bunch of copies of the statement. And he says, I think there's enough to go around. I want to make sure the AP man gets one, because he knows that the story that the Associated Press writes is going to be in papers all over the country. If you don't have your own reporter there, uh, newspapers would use the Associated Press version. Of course, there are not enough copies to go around. And in the mad rush to try to get one of these things, 
boy it starts to get jostling around. His hat gets knocked off. It catches on the tip of his ear, comically. Uh, and he leaves, goes up the gangway, and he says, that's it. I'm gone. And he leaves his statement to settle the score with the journalist that he blamed for his expulsion, which was John Ratham. By 1917, you say Ratham is the most famous newsman in America, confidant of the president, trusted by millions of Americans, without any evidence he even ever spoke his real name on this continent. And he goes on tour. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a lifestyle he set up for himself as a reporter to be able to go on tour afterwards. Could you imagine that? Uh, I cannot imagine that. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I've I guess out. you're doing it now, but that's because you have a book, right? Yeah, right. Well, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't, um, you know, uh, sold out the city club in Boston either. Um, but he went on a, yes, he did. After America declared war on Germany, he went on kind of a victory tour. Uh, it started in Toronto and hit a bunch of major cities, uh, New York, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia. And in each place, he told fantastical tales about how he got all his scoops. Now, again, before this for this uh, tour, no one knew how this little conservative paper in Rhode Island was getting all these world-shattering scoops. And he promised on his tour that he would tell the true story. He didn't tell the true story. <laughs> he told a great story. It just happened not to be true. And that was that John Ratham was the head of a counter-spy operation, and all his reporters were his counter-spies. And he, and he sent them to infiltrate the German consulate, the Austrian embassy, and these people stole documents and listened to conversations and um, uh, German uh, radio broadcasts were plucked from the air by the prominent journal's uh, uh, radio station on Block Island, a little resort island uh, south of um, the mainland, uh, decoded by John Ratham and his uh, reporters. And that's how, that's how all these stories came to be. Of course, none of that is true. What is true is that many of the things that he claimed credit for were done by other people, by real spies in this country, or by federal agents. Uh, he plagiarized the uh, heroic deeds of other people to take credit for himself, and that made him incredibly famous. And we look back now and we think like, well, how can anyone fall for this, that this guy was like running this massive counter-spy operation, defeating German uh, spies at their own game, and putting out two newspapers, two editions of a newspaper a day. Like, how did he even make this happen? We didn't make that happen. Uh, but I think maybe it was just a bit of a more innocent time, but these stories were, were not only believed, they were absolutely celebrated. Uh, it was a really, dark and dangerous time in American history. Um, American soldiers were sailing across the ocean to go to a war that was an absolute meat grinder. People were terrified. Um, people were afraid of their neighbors. Uh, I think that's sort of a sad uh, component of this that has repeated time and time again, that when the country gets afraid, we tend to, tend to turn on our neighbors. Uh, people were afraid of German Americans. Many were rounded up and put into internment camps um, as Japanese Americans would be in World War II. Um, and uh, the man at the head of this, seeding a lot of this fear, uh, was, was John Ratham. So I want to ask, how did he get brought 
down. It's sort of, I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Moses in New York, you're a Massachusetts guy and you know, the two shall never meet. But um, it sort of reminded me how Rockefeller is the one who kind of ends the power of Robert Moses in New York, the way that Ratham's power was sort of taken down or was, was threatened by Franklin Roosevelt. So just explain how Ratham's power as a, a pundit, if I may call him that, um, erodes as we get into the 1920s. Sure. Ratham had, uh, I think, one of the most remarkable rises in, uh, in, in civic life in American history and also one of the most spectacular falls. And um, so it kind of goes back to uh, 1919, 1920, when, um, uh, when officers at the, at the Naval Station Newport in Newport, Rhode Island, thought it would be a great idea to figure out, to root out gay sailors from the Navy, figure out who are the gay sailors and get them out of the Navy. Again, this is a primitive time when gay Americans were actually prosecuted as sex criminals and literally put into prison, literally jailed. So, but what these Naval commanders thought would be a great idea, and it's almost too stupid for words, is let's, let's recruit a sting team. Let's recruit an undercover team for a sting. Uh, and you know, young, handsome sailors, many of them still in their teens. Let's send them out into the wild and let them have sex with other gay sailors. Then write down the name of those sailors who they had sex with and report that to their authorities so those other men could be prosecuted. Uh, it was known as um, the this division was this this you know, undercover sodomy team was known as uh, Section A of the Office of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And the Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the time was a young Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So this eventually becomes public. And as you can imagine, it's a massive scandal. There was a uh, Ratham uh, went crazy about it uh, in Rhode Island on the front page and in scorching editorials. And he absolutely torches the Navy for for the, uh, the levels that they went to to entrap these men. Um, uh, he demands a congressional investigation and he actually gets one. The US Senate uh, appoints a subcommittee to investigate and take hearings on this. Uh, there's another court martial court that takes hearings. This is quite a scandal. It wounds, it, it wounds Roosevelt um, pretty deeply, even though he would claim forever that he had no idea how that they that this special team was going about collecting evidence for this thing, I, I don't find that credible. But that is his story. Uh, now, most people, most people don't never realize this that Roosevelt was actually before he was president, before he got polio, even he was the Democratic vice presidential nominee in 1920 on a ticket with John Cox, uh, who was the governor of Ohio. <clears throat> They ended up getting wiped out by Warren G. Harding uh, in the election of 1920. But throughout the, the campaign of 1920, the Newport scandal would crop up now and then. Uh, uh, so Roosevelt wanted a way to shut Ratham up. And what he, what he eventually learned was that the Department of Justice went hard at Ratham after his speaking tour. The DOJ was offended that Ratham was essentially claiming credit for things that federal officers had, had done, as well as 
claiming that every city in America was, uh, was full of German spies and the federal government wasn't doing anything about it. So the federal, so the, the, the Attorney General of the United States ordered that Ratham be deposed for a, uh, be subpoenaed to speak before a grand jury. And that way they could create, they could, they could find out, was he telling his truth on his, telling the truth on his um, speaking tour or was he making things up? Ratham didn't want to testify. So to get out of testifying, he signed a letter admitting that the things he said on the, on the speaking tour were false. The Attorney General of the United States said, fine, I'll hold this letter. I'll keep it secret as long as Ratham behaves. In 1920, um, FDR wrote to the Justice Department and said, is there nothing we can do to uh, shut Ratham up because he's attacking my campaign. Uh, he's making me look bad. And the Justice Department said, sure, there's something we can do. We have his letter admitting to all these falsehoods on the stump. So the Justice Department releases that letter after blackmailing Ratham for two years. The Justice Department releases that letter. Ratham is um, effectively destroyed reputationally. Uh, the writers of history essentially leave him out. And all his impact, both in his newspapers and on the stump, uh, is just largely forgotten. I think not entirely fairly, I think he did have things in the newspaper that were true and were important, and he did have, a, I think, a significant impact on the, the psyche of America in terms of whether or not the U.S. would be ready to go to war. So, so that, that is my question. This is a ridiculous question to ask, excuse me, to ask about one person other than the president of the United States. Would America have gone into World War I if not for him? I say unclear. If not for him, and maybe a small number of others like him, he wasn't the only journalist who was beating the drums for war against Germany. He was the most famous. Uh, and I think that they did do a considerable amount. They did have a considerable amount of effect on American public opinion. Again, America didn't really want to go to war in the beginning. Ratham saw America's resistance to war as an enemy, as as dangerous as Germany itself, and he sought to wear it down the way the wind wears down a mountain, a little bit at a time, one story at a time. And if you judge by uh, people with contemporaries who spoke about him or wrote about him, he had a significant impact on, uh, on America's willingness to risk its sons in a European war. Obviously, ethics are incredibly important in journalism. Um, what did you learn about journalism ethics from this? I mean, for me, um, you know, I'm reminded of the adage that you truly have to represent yourself fairly. Even if you are writing a Pulitzer Prize winning story, if you lie to get that story, you are not practicing journalism properly. Um, that was the takeaway for me. What about for you? Uh, I think the takeaway for me is um, I feel like it's our duty as uh, news consumers, and I, I'm, I'm a news writer, but I'm a huge news consumers, to seek out places that, uh, and people who I trust, and people who have proven over time to uh, conduct themselves ethically and who um, write work that is fair and impactful. Um, also, I always, when you're trying to choose a place to get your news from, Make sure you always choose a place that runs corrections. 
Mm. If a place never runs a correction, it's not a real news organization because everyone is human. Everyone makes mistakes. There are mistakes in news stories time to time. It's, it's, you know, it's frustrating, but it is inevitable. Correcting those mistakes is the difference between a real news organization and a fake one. So that's one thing that I look at um, when deciding who I want to get my news from. Who are the modern day Rathams and who are the modern day anti-Rathams? Yeah, I don't, I've been asked this before. I'm not sure that Ratham has like a modern day uh, equivalent. Um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, if you look at someone who had like climbed to the top of the mountain and fell off, I think of like a Lance Armstrong, right? I mean, who climbed higher and who fell further, right? Um, he's not in news. I think Ratham, you know, maybe uh, I can see a little bit uh, in terms of his, you know, the way he, used information um, sometimes in a cynical uh, or underhanded way. I think of maybe a less malignant Roger Stone, right? Uh, but Ratham was also, you know, was kind of like a Jake Tapper or just a like a traditional, I mean, he was considered a traditional newsman uh, and one of the most famous in America. Um, so I think all of those th people together embody different parts of John Ratham. Um, I mean, eventually I did figure out his real identity, which, you know, I'm, I don't want to give that up too much. Yeah. I haven't, haven't really, you know, I've been, it's sort of like, um, you know, if, the, if you write a mystery book, you don't want yeah, to give away exactly. like, who the killer was. And, uh, no spoilers uh, here. No spoilers. But, uh, but, um, you know, and I, I do think it explains a little bit, you know, his real identity explains a little bit of his motivations about why he thought he needed to step into a character that he never stepped out of. How should the story of American involvement in World War I inform our view of American foreign policy today? Um, I, unfortunately, I think cynically, right? Um, I mean, the, um, uh, I've got some passages in there, but Secretary of State Robert Lansing, um, from the, uh, who was Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State for most of these years, um, said in his memoir that at the, even at major points where America was angry at Germany, it was still going to take more work to get the American people to want war. He said the American people can be taught, taught, educated to want a war. It was just going to take time. And, you know, John Ratham made common cause the Wilson administration on that point. But eventually, America was taught to want a war. And I think, you know, I got to say, cynically speaking, um, it was something that, um, you know, Lansing, anyway, who was sort of a, a hawk on the German question, was um, plotting a couple of years before it happened. So, unfortunately, I think the, the, the lesson of, you know, of America's involvement in World War I was, uh, was one of cynical involvement. And, I mean, I don't think we, the, the, it doesn't seem that, that, that there was a compelling national interest like there would have been in World War II. The Russians copied some of this in 2016. They went into our social media and they manipulated Twitter algorithms and they made fake events for supporters of different candidates to show up at. They fostered anger at 
one of the candidates in particular. Um, was it unbelievable for you to read through these sources and realize, wait a minute, we just went through the same thing five years ago? Uh, it was ex it's exactly the same, right? Uh, the, the one difference, uh, I mean, Germany did all those things, right? They created um, fake uh, political groups in America that were actually backed by German money and run by German officers who re recruited, uh, one of them was a pacifist group that opposed the shipment of arms to Europe. And the, uh, the, the Germans recruited sincere American pacifists and organized them to a group and, and sent them out to do political activities to try to try to stop, to try to get an arms embargo. So uh, Great Britain couldn't get arms from the United States. And that was in 1915, 1916. And the Russians, I guess the one difference would be, it's a lot easier to just sit in a room in St. Petersburg and click on a mouse and create a Facebook group or a, a Twitter group in America and, and organize people that way than it is to sail all the way here and do it, and, and do it in person. Although some of them did that too. Uh, who is Henry Arsenal? Henry Arsenal, I love this my, story. my grandfather, right? Um, my grandfather in, uh, in 1917, he was, a, he was a teenage farm boy in uh, New Brunswick, Canada, uh, outside of Moncton. Uh, he was drafted into the Canadian Expeditionary Forces, sent to Europe uh, in 1918. Near the end of the war in northern France, about 100 miles from Paris, two weeks before the war ended, uh, he was shot through the leg. Um, survived that. Um, it's funny because I have his uh, military records and the doctor, uh, this little sketch of a man, a little outline of a human figure on his report. And the doctor put a little black pencil dot where the bullet ended, where the bullet entered his leg and where the bullet exited his leg. And he moved those dots tiny little bit up that that's femoral artery and that's that's almost certainly a fatal battlefield field wound in 1918. Henry Arsenal was um, rescued off the battlefield, evacuated to a military hospital, survived the war, came home, married an Irish girl, had five sons, all of whom he named Joseph. I'm not exactly sure why. It's, it's still never been credibly explained to me in the family. The youngest of those Joes and the only one still alive is my father, who's um, in his 80s um, living in central Massachusetts. That's how history works. Incredible. Um, I know I'm not allowed to ask what you're working on at the Boston Globe, but uh, tell us how you work on it. How does the Spotlight team operate? Um, and you know, what is it like to work and have the the deadlines that I can't even imagine of a couple times a year. I mean, my deadlines are a couple times a day. So what is it like for you and uh, how does work at Spotlight um, take place? Yeah, it's a little bit different. Again, I've been a daily reporter where I've where I filed every day or you know, multiple times a day. So I certainly know what that is like. Um, working on something with a long-term deadline is a bit different um, because you know, you're not in the paper all the time. So you're not getting that constant reinforcement. And there are many days where you feel like you've completely you've done nothing but drill dry holes. Like you've made a bunch of calls and you've got nothing back. It feels like, you know, I just wasted this whole day. But I mean, it's not wasted because you've figured out where their information is not. So now you've at least eliminated. I like that. Places. I'm going to use that. That's good. Yeah. I figured out where the information isn't. 
I figured out where it isn't. Um, so that gives me a better chance tomorrow figuring out where it is. So we work on um, you know deeply reported projects that have some kind of major impact. That's what we shoot for. The last year, I've spent most of my time uh, covering issues around incarceration, which is, uh, I think, an important issue. Um, we've um, done a couple stories on that. For that, we did a story about uh, inequality in the way people die. In fact, inequalities in death. People who are poor, people of color, often die uh, in worse circumstances. Um, uh, you know, people who die in a hospital versus dying at home, people who um, die younger um, than, uh, than other people in other neighborhoods. So we spent a big, we did a major project uh, sort of trying to expose those inequities in the way people die. Uh, it's, you know, tremendously, I find it tremendously valuable and satisfying work. Um, it's, although it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard when you've, when you've got to carry momentum uh, over a long period of time without publishing a story every day or every couple of days. It's a, it's a different rhythm to it, but it's, uh, I find it really rewarding. I'm glad to be doing it. Were you there when they did the um, church abuse scandal that of course became the famous movie? No, I wasn't. Uh, at the time, I was at the Providence Journal at the time, um, but I have since come to know all those reporters and editors, or most of them. Uh, some of those people I did overlap with when I started at the Globe, uh, and who are my friends and buddies for life. Hmm. What is the state of print journalism? I'm always concerned about it. You guys do work that um, is so essential for our democracies to function. Uh, just from your view on the inside, uh, how healthy are newspapers right now? I think that depends largely on the paper. And I think like, uh, you know, the big nationals are doing really well, the Wall Street Journal, the Times and the Post, right? I think the big regionals, I think Boston Globe has done remarkably well after, you know, a difficult period where as the model changed from, you know, the paper being supported mostly by print advertising to the paper being mostly supported by digital subscriptions. That was a radical change in the model of how newspapers support themselves and you know, pay to gather and publish the news. Um, I think that the, the big chains that have gotten involved and gobbled up a lot of the smaller dailies all over the country and even the you know, smaller weeklies, I think you know, that's been a terrible model. Um, and they've just been bleeding, essentially bleeding them down, riding down whatever profit they can, running these small newspapers into the ground, selling off the real estate assets. And then when they're no longer profitable, then it wouldn't be that hard to walk away. So I think we're going to, we've already lost a lot of small papers. I think we're going to keep losing them and people are going to be, find themselves more and more in news deserts, which I think is dangerous to the democracy. If you don't have someone whether it's the state house, Congress, or even city hall, or you know the um, the, the, the sewer division at uh, down at whatever county you, you, you live in, if no one's watching the till, then you know things tend to go off the rails. So I I, I don't think that bodes well for America to not have to, to lose all these newspapers and to not have consistent coverage of you know, local issues all over the country. I, I think that's a that's a that's a dangerous, it's a dangerous event. Mm. Uh, it took 15 years, you said, for this one uh, to go from idea to paper. 
Uh, will you do another book, do you think? Uh, actually, I've, you know, I've written a few novels. So I used to write crime fiction back in the last decade or two decades ago. The aughts, I guess, the first decade of the, 20, of the 21st century. So I did a few crime fiction novels. Um, uh, I wrote another crime fiction novel, in fact, before this book, mostly when I was on the train going into Boston to work every day. There was something wrong with it. I couldn't quite figure out what it was. Um, so I just let it sit there. And in the meantime, I wrote this book. So recently I returned back to that, I did rewrite that. And, you know, it's with my agent and you know, hopefully we can place that. Uh, I enjoy writing, this is my first nonfiction book. I enjoy doing it a lot. So I am you know, kicking around some other ideas. Um, you know, I would love to do another. I, I always feel like I need to have some kind of side project going or I'm just, I just feel unsettled. Well, some of the writing in this book is uh, certainly beautiful and poignant, and we look forward to potentially a second entry into your nonfiction career. Uh, Mark Arsenault, the author of The Imposter's War, Press, Propaganda, and the Newsman Who Battled for the Minds of America. Check out the book. Check out his Twitter feed, which is at Boston Globe. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Evan, thanks very much for having me. This is really fun. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We will donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at axelbankhistory. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks.